0: Verse 46, Luke 1, 46. and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, And remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as Brother Josh prayed for humility, I pray for humility. Lord, because it is only with humble hearts that you give that we can receive your word. So Lord, I pray right now that we would not hold ourselves over your word but as your servants that we would receive it. And as we learn from this young teenage girl, who led by your Spirit, sang these things, and as we learn from Luke, who led by your Spirit, wrote down these things, Lord, teach us, move us to Christ, humble our hearts, and lift us up so that we may rejoice in Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible is the word of God. We know that. We confess that. And the Bible is also about the word of God. The Bible is the word of God because it is written by God. It's written by the Holy Spirit through human authors. The Bible is about the word of God because it is the story of about the truthfulness and the faithfulness and the power of what God says. If you were to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, in just the third verse, the, the, the first thing that happens in creation is that God speaks. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And what is being communicated to us, the readers of God's word, through that sentence, Genesis 1-3, is more than where did light come from. What we're learning there in Genesis 1, at the very beginning of the Bible, is that when God speaks, what God intends to happen, happens. Happens. And it continues on every day of creation. And God said, let there be an expanse between the heavens and the earth. And it was so. And God said, let the waters, waters be gathered together and the dry land appear. And it was so. And over and over again through every day of creation, we see the authority of God's word and we see the power of God's word. So when God promises later on in Genesis chapter 3 that one day, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. What we have been trained to do as we're reading Genesis is we, we were trained to expect that just as he said, let there be light and there was light. When God says there will be a child who will end the curse, we expect it will be so because God's word is faithful. God's word is powerful. What God says will happen will happen. Creation itself primes our hearts to believe in the surety of God's word. And later on in Genesis, when God promises Abraham the offspring, as sure as the rising sun, we expect the offspring to come from Abraham. And when God promises David later on that his offspring will sit on his throne, we expect that also to come to pass. And as you track the voice of God, the words of God, throughout the scriptures, the word of God, we learn that if there is anything, In all of creation that is sure, this much we can count on, what God says will happen, will happen. And that is, I believe, one of the most important, if not the most important theme in all the scriptures. And it's also the introduction to this morning's text. Last week, as we were studying Elizabeth's words, the last thing that Elizabeth told us, we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 45. The last thing Elizabeth said before Mary broke out into song was, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth says that Mary is blessed because she believed that what God said would happen would happen, which is the message of the Bible. Like like Abraham, Mary believed God at his word. She believed that God was bringing this Messiah into the world to save his people, and she believed that he was coming into the world through her because God said that's how it would happen. And led along by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth sees that. She, She sees that faith in Mary. And she proclaims that that eulogy over her. And that's what precipitates Mary's song. So as we as we prepare ourselves to read and study Mary's song, know this: Mary is singing as the one who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. All right. So so she's singing in fulfillment. Of what Elizabeth said, but more than 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 Mary, Elizabeth is also saying, "Blessed is believing Israel, the remnant of God's people." Because before Mary, God promised Israel that the Messiah would come to them. So, if you look back again at verse forty-five, keep your Bibles open today. And I'm just going to tell you, we're going to be all over the place today. It's just it's one of those passages that sends us all over the scriptures on a quest. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 45, when when Elizabeth said, Blessed is she who believed, that pronoun she is used intentionally, ambiguously, because Israel is also sometimes spoken of as God's bride. So blessed is she, Mary, and blessed is she, God's bride, Israel. So blessed is Mary who believed Gabriel's message from God, and blessed is faithful, believing Israel, the bride, who believed that God's promises would be fulfilled in the sending of Messiah. So, so just here at the beginning, as we get into Mary's song, what I want you to see is that Mary is like a proxy for Israel. God promised Israel that the offspring would come through Israel, and God promised Mary that the offspring would come through her. Faithful Israel believed, and faithful Mary believed. They are sort of sharing a role here as the subject of Elizabeth's blessing. So, so I, as we also as we get into this, I want you to imagine this scene like a like a musical because um, this is a song, so it's like a musical. One character. On the stage says, some, says something like, here is the one coming in who, who believed the king's message. And then here she comes. She walks in and the spotlight moves from Elizabeth to Mary, the one who believed the king. And she starts to sing a song about believing the king's message. That's what we're about to see in her song. And as you listen to her song, you'll find, hey, that's not an original song. She's just singing little bits and parts of all the other songs that we've heard in the musical. And that's what we see here with Mary. It's not a new tune. Mary is singing a medley of various songs of the other people in the musical who also believed the king's words, all the people throughout the history of Israel, faithful Israel. Moses' song is in Mary's song. The song from... Exodus fifteen that we read, and just so you know about that Exodus fifteen passage. Remember last week when when um, John the Baptist is leaping and turning in uh, with joy in Elizabeth's womb. There is an old Jewish legend that when Moses' song was sang by Moses and the Israelites, that the babies inside their mothers' wombs were also singing. It's just a legend, but it, it, it makes sense when you see it with John the Baptist. That is a rabbit trail. I'm sorry, but it's, it's interesting. So, so Moses' song is in Mary's song here. We're going to hear bits of Hannah's song uh, that we also read in, in, in Mary's song. We are going to see words from, from Leah, Jacob's first sort of what kind of first wife, accidental or tricked wife. Leah's words are here. Numerous psalms are repeated by Mary in this song. There are prophecies about the, the restoration that is to come that Mary will repeat to us. There are songs about the Messiah from prophecies that, that Mary has, has, has worked into her hip-hop mashup here. And the theme of her song is that, this is, this is Mary's theme, because God has sent Messiah, we know that God is faithful. The theme of the song is that because God has sent Messiah, God has been faithful to fulfill what he spoke of. And that's what Mary's blessed for, right? The one who believed that God would do what he said he would do. And Mary's singing about what it looks like to believe that all that God said he would do would happen and is happening. So let's look now to the mother of our Lord, the model of faith in receiving Christ, and listen to her song and hear her heart of praise. So let's look at verse 46, and I'll just tell you right now, I have never been so challenged by the poetry of a 13-year-old girl before, but, but Mary's song is challenging because it is just rich, and we're just going to skim the surface. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So, this is very similar. What Mary's doing here is very similar to what we heard from Mary and Caleb, or from Hannah. Caleb was reading Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2. This is very similar to that song. When, when, when Hannah sang, My heart exalts in the Lord. That's what Mary's doing. Her heart exalts in the Lord. And this is also very similar to Psalm 35, verse 9, where David sings, My soul rejoices in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Mary was, Mary's echoing Hannah's song of faith, and Mary's echoing David's song of faith, and she's expressing her own faith through echoing those words. She's expressing her own faith in God's word, and she is singing in joy. This is not just a riff on all of these songs this is personal this is mary's faith is personal it's real it's intimate she's saying here that her entire being is uplifted by what has happened that's what that parallel parallelism between my soul and my spirit is she's saying all of who i am every bit of me is rejoicing in god her soul magnifies the lord her spirit rejoices. That's all of who she is. That's a biblical parallelism in the language there. It's, it's all, every bit of her. Her soul magnifies the Lord. That means that because of the gospel, because the Lord has fulfilled his promises and has brought the Christ child, the Savior, the Lord is now somehow made bigger in her heart. He's magnified. God really is, and this is, this is a theological reality, God really is magnified, in Christ's arrival. Christmas magnifies God. The, the Lord is revealed in the person of Christ. He's, he's bigger to us, he's visible to us. And so we know him more closely. He's, he's bigger to us because his love is made known to us in Christ. His grace and mercy are made known to us in Christ. His power is made known to us in Christ. God is revealed in Christ. And so he's magnified. Just think of a magnifying glass. He's bigger to us through Christ. This is more than just abstract theology. This, this is happening in Mary's soul, in her being. She's experiencing this. Have you experienced this before? This magnification of God in your own being? Maybe some, some aspect? of who God really and truly is has become more real to you, more sure to you. And so God himself has become more glorious in your mind. Now in himself, God hasn't changed, has he? But through the renewing of your mind, your perception of God is changed. And so he's magnified, he's bigger to you. Certainly this happens when we receive Christ in faith. But it doesn't stop at our conversion. This, this magnifying of God also happens when we experience who God is in his faithfulness, his power, his mercy, his compassion. Maybe there's been someone that you have been praying for and praying for and praying for that they would finally come to saving faith. And then the Lord answers your prayer and he is made bigger to you. He is He's magnified in your understanding and in your being. Maybe there is a sin that you have have, have battled and battled and battled, and you have asked for the Lord's help, and he's answered you. He's met you in your time, in your place of need, and and, and because of that, he's, he's magnified. He's made greater in your soul. It could simply be that you're seeing something in the Scriptures. You're reading God's Word, and something about who God is, just fills you. You've not seen it before, but now you see it. When I, when I was a freshman in college, I, I, I began studying the book of Romans, and I got to those, those more difficult passages in Romans 8 and 9 that, frankly, I'll just confess, I didn't believe them. I was, I was raised Armenian, I was raised to not believe Romans 8 and 9, and I didn't believe what the Bible said about who God was, and I remember sitting there as a student in the student union, reading those passages and being struck to the heart, this is who God is. I've had too low a view of God. If God is sovereign over salvation, as Romans says he is, then I have been thinking of God as too small, and I repented. I repented of my man-centered faith, and the Holy Spirit in me enlarged my understanding of who God is. The Spirit magnified God in my soul. That, that ballooning of her estimation of God is what Mary is experiencing here. This, it's an enlarging, a, a magnification of God. And she is seeing God more for who he truly is, and she is in awe. My soul magnifies the Lord in my spirit. That, that that's the quickening bit of who she is, my spirit rejoices and rejoicing really is this is this is mark mark my words mark god's word rejoicing really is what happens as god becomes greater in our hearts as we become more aware of who he is we increase in joy by necessity it is a fact of creation We increase in joy as we come closer to who God is. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or you could say to magnify God and rejoice. It's the same thing. It's what Mary's doing. She's, she's, she's living out the chief end of, of man. When, when God increases in your soul, in your, your joy also increases because you're doing what you were designed to do. And the opposite is also true, and you know this. When it is not God, but it is you who is greater in your mind, when your estimation of yourself is magnified, God is diminished and joy decreases. The more you think of yourself, the less joyful you will be. The more you think of yourself, the less joyful you will be. And here's why that happens. When you believe yourself to be greater and worthy of adoration from others, no one will ever do that well enough. No one will ever, no one can ever meet your lofty expectations of how others should treat you. No one will esteem you as highly as you esteem yourself. And so the result is you will be socially anxious and frustrated and bothered and miserable. Why why aren't people treating me the way I expect? That'll be the theme of your self-talk. And then what happens? You get down on yourself because you aren't meeting your own expectations of your high view of yourself. And And then disappointment comes on top of already disappointment and sadness and anxiety start to pile up on you and you go further and further down into misery and despair. Not because of low self-esteem, but because of too high an estimation of your own importance. And because there cannot be two greatest beings in your heart, your elevation of yourself necessarily minimizes God in your being. God is minimized. This is the opposite of magnifying God, isn't it? When you are big in your own thoughts, God becomes small. When God is big in your thoughts, you become small. One leads to despair, the other leads to joy. Friends, follow Mary's example. Lower your estimation of yourself. And increase your estimation of the Lord. Magnify the Lord. And by the grace of God, your bitterness and your despair will start to melt away and joy will fill its place. And how does that happen? Well, Mary tells us. The mechanism by which that happens, she tells us in verse 48. And this is the secret of her joy. For he, she's recognizing something magnificent here. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So Mary magnifies the Lord and rejoices because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. You hear in in Mary the same expression of faith that we heard in Elizabeth last week. You remember Elizabeth asking, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mary is saying the same thing. This humility that Mary expresses and the the humility that that Elizabeth showed us, this is a spirit-born characteristic of all who are of faith, and this is the source of Mary's joy. You see, when your, when your estimation of God is magnified in your heart, your estimation of yourself is low, then, then when God causes you to know Christ as Savior, when you realize that Christ is the one who has died for you and forgiven you in your, your, your sinful, undeserving, worm-like, lowly state, then your heart is filled with joy. Real joy, true joy. Joy that comes from him and not from you. You cannot receive Christ in a place of pride. You absolutely must first know your lowly estate. And that revelation comes from the Spirit who prepares your heart for Christ. And then here's the bump if God shows his love for you in that way, in Christ Jesus, if he has shown you, even you, his mercy, you realize that. And then nothing else matters. What does it matter what others think of you if the God of all creation has given you his Christ? If he has shown his love towards you? The Lord of all creation has loved you. He's redeemed you. Your joy is now no longer in yourself, but in him, isn't it? Your joy is now in him and not in you. And that's what Mary is experiencing. That's why she's singing with joy. Her joy is in the Lord and not in herself. And she knows what is occurring is great. She knows the greatness of her privilege in receiving Christ. Look what she says of this privilege in verse 48. She's giving more reasons why her soul is magnifying the Lord. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now before we get to the personal side of this for Mary... We need to see that this, all generations will call me blessed. This is a fulfillment and a reference to Psalm 45. If you're taking notes, write that down. So I don't have time to expose the entire Psalm, but you, it would serve your soul well to read Psalm 45 and see what Mary is singing about here. So, Mary's. Words are a quote from Psalm 45, or Mary's song. Remember, Mary's song is a mashup of of the Old Testament, and this line is directly from Psalm 45, and that's massively important to understanding the meaning of what she's singing. Psalm 45 is is, is, is about a king and the blessed woman he chooses to be his bride. That's what that psalm is about. And the psalm says, the king is anointed by God, and somehow this king is also God, and he's bringing righteousness, and he's going to rule over his enemies. Now, who does that sound like? It's a Messiah, isn't it? That's a Messiah psalm. Clearly, only the Messiah is anointed by God, and only the Messiah is both God and man. Psalm 45 is about him. And about halfway through, as you're reading Psalm 45, you're going to see the theme of the Psalm turn from focusing on the Messiah to focusing on the bride. And there's this great wedding and the action taking place is that the bride is going into the king's chambers and the king sings to her, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. I will, this is what he says. He says, This is the only place in all of scripture, aside from Mary singing, Psalm 45 is the only place we see this. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. you see the similarity between what Psalm 45 is saying and what Mary is singing here? From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And the the, the reason for singing is the same. Like Psalm 45, Mary is celebrating the arrival of the Messiah. He's come to her. Now, there's a difference between Psalm 45 and Mary's song, isn't there? Psalm 45 is about the bride, and Mary is not the bride of the Messiah. Not in and of herself, as as a member of the church, she is. But in and of herself, she's the mother of Messiah. But remember, Mary is not just singing for herself here. She's also singing the song, repeating the various songs of faithful Israel. And in the sense that she is singing Israel's song, Israel is the bride of the Lord. And by extension, the church is the bride of the Lord. So Mary here is saying, Psalm 45 is being fulfilled. That's what she's saying. That's the, I gave you the long version. Psalm 45 is being fulfilled. All generations after me will call me blessed. That was promised in Psalm 45. Mary is realizing that now. Mary's joy, her rejoicing, is in seeing the fulfillment of what God said would happen. Who is blessed? Blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary's saying what was spoken to Israel from the Lord in Psalm 45 is being fulfilled. She's singing the blessing. But she is also... And this is often the nature of fulfilled prophecy, isn't it? There's a double fulfillment. Mary is also singing about her own privilege. Mary truly is a woman who in her own right, as Jesus' mother, she's remembered for all generations. This is true. She's not only a proxy for Israel singing about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. She is also Jesus' mom. And she's singing about the experience of bringing the Messiah into the world. And as Jesus' mom, Mary is arguably the most famous woman in all of human history, isn't she? Every place on earth that Christianity has touched, which is a lot of places, every place that Christianity has spread to, parents have named their daughters Mary. How many people in here don't know someone named Mary? Mary. I want to take a moment here, just pause from Mary's song, and recognize, hey, we are, we are reading about Mary here, and this is a time of year when a lot of people are talking about Mary. And I want to talk about how we should think about Mary, because we can err on one side by worshiping Mary, and we can err on the other side by discounting her role altogether. Because of, of passages like Gabriel telling Mary that the Lord has found favor with her and, and, and then Elizabeth calling Mary the mother of the Lord and saying, blessed are you among women. And even Mary's statement here, all generations will call me blessed. The church historically has had a very high view of Mary. That's good. That's right. That's biblical. Mary, as the church historically has taught us, is like, and I use that word intentionally, like, She's like a new Eve. Justin Martyr in the 160s AD, so a long, long time ago, said that Eve listened and believed the voice of the serpent and so conceived his word and brought forth sin and death. While Mary listened to the voice of God and believed him and conceived the word of God, the Christ, and so brought forth life. There's a comparison between Eve's unbelief in God's word and Mary's belief in God's word. Eve's pride in the entrance of sin into the world and Mary's humility at the entrance of Christ. Those are good comparisons, aren't they? Those are are good connections for us to make. We we do well to see that that what the Lord is doing through Mary and in these cases, we can see that Mary's faith is, is an example to us. Don't be like Eve, be like Mary the error comes when you take it too far. So the Roman church and the Eastern Orthodox churches have an argument that goes something like this. Premise one, Mary brought the Christ into the world. Is that true? It is. That's true. She did bring the Christ into the world, but it's more accurate to say that the father sent the son into the world. But we can't ignore, Mary did give birth to him. And then they'll say, okay, so there's premise one, Mary brought the Christ into the world. And then premise two, because Mary brought the Christ into the world, she's like a mediator. Now, it's technically true that a mediator is a go-between of sorts. So, my wife is a mediator of my children to me in, in, in that sense. But nowhere in the scriptures is that word used of Mary. It's technically true. Theologically, it's suspect. Nowhere in the scriptures is is the mother of Jesus spoken of as a mediatorial role. So that description is a stretch. And then you know where they're taking Stretch Armstrong from there, the conclusion. Then the conclusion is drawn from those two premises as this. As the mediator between God and the world, we should go to Mary in prayer. And that is where Rome and the East are in very dangerous error because now they have crept into idolatry. Mary is filling a space within the church that rightfully rightfully only belongs to God. So what's interesting is that Jesus seemed to see this coming in the same book that we read about Mary. And in, in Luke chapter 11, Verse 27, Jesus commands us not to exalt Mary. Verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd, so Jesus is teaching, and a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you are nursed. But he said, he didn't say, yes, that's right. No, no, Jesus rebuked her. He said, blessed rather, so not her, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It is as if Jesus knew the error that the church would be prone to because of Luke chapter 1, and so he's protecting us from an overly exalted view of Mary by saying, not to focus on Mary, but on Christ. But that doesn't mean we're to ignore Mary, okay? That's where we Protestant, especially Baptists, take it a little too far the other way we're not to ignore mary she really does hold a place of privilege not only did mary give birth to christ but she also nurtured him and she brought him up that means she she taught him to speak and she no doubt sang to him and like a good jewish mother she recited the psalms to him isn't it, isn't it amazing that the very words that were written by the eternal christ about the christ who would come were very likely taught to the child christ by mary It's it's crazy. And she took him to the temple, which was the place of the presence of God that he would become. And she taught him about the feast and the festivals, which he would fulfill. Mary also, we don't think about this much, but Mary had the enviable privilege of spending more time with Jesus while he crawled and toddled and walked the earth than any other person in human history. That's pretty cool. She truly, truly, truly was blessed by God to receive such a gift. And her name is rightfully remembered and revered. But let me just say this the only time that Mary should come up in your prayers is when you're praying about a friend named Mary. Okay? Your prayers are to the Father through the Son. By the power of the Spirit, and that's it. There's one God, three persons, not four. Mary points us, though, as we're, as we're studying this, Mary points us to something greater than herself. So even if, if, even if we ignore Luke 11, where Jesus says how we should think about Mary, Mary herself would tell us how to think about it, because she's pointing us to something greater than herself. Why does Mary say she will be remembered? Look at verse 49. She says, for I'm going to be remembered for all generations, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, what great things is she talking about here? You might think, well, she has the baby Jesus, but there's more to it than that. And to answer that question, what great things she's talking about, we need to see where Mary is pointing us. Remember, she's repeating Old Testament scriptures. There's nothing original in what she says. It's all a mash-up. Everything she said is pulled from the Old Testament scriptures. So what are the great things? He who is, who is mighty, what does it mean that his name is holy? She's not talking about herself here. She says that what God has done for her, the great things God has done for her, are according to God's might and God's holiness. He who is mighty has done great things. His name is holy. And what she means... Uh, we'll, we'll break it down in those three, three sections, great things, might, and holiness. Throughout the scriptures, God's might, what she's singing about here, he is he mighty, God's might is nearly always, and I say nearly because I just I didn't read them all, but everyone that I read showed that God's might is seen in his victory over enemies. That makes sense, doesn't it? So Psalm 24, 8, for example, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Deuteronomy teaches again and again that the Lord's might is seen in his work in saving Israel through the Exodus. And then, this one's probably the most important one. Because uh, in Zephaniah 3, in the last section of Zephaniah 3, the Lord tells Israel, Sing and exult and rejoice because the Lord is mighty to save. So, Zephaniah 3.14. Yes, I'm saying your name. Yes. (laughs) Zephaniah 3.14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, with all of your being, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's what Mary's doing, isn't it? So, we need to recognize that Mary is singing and rejoicing with all her heart. Her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's responding verbatim to God's exhortation in Zephaniah 3.14. She's doing what God said to do in Zephaniah 3.14. And Zephaniah goes on to say why Israel should be rejoicing, why Mary should be rejoicing. He says in in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And that's true for Mary. The Lord Jesus Christ is in her midst, He is present with her, and he is the mighty one who will save. And so Mary is singing, in response to Zephaniah and to God's gift, Mary is singing of God's might, his power in salvation. And that makes sense because she uses the phrase, which is a theological phrase, the great things he has done. The great things that God has done. And nearly every time you see that phrase, the great things God has done, anywhere you see that in the scriptures, it refers to salvation. Always, Deuteronomy refers to the Exodus redemption as the great things of God. Psalm one twenty six, that beautiful psalm that we sing sometimes here in worship, is about a future restoration and the arrival of the Christ, and there God's redeeming work is spoken of as great things. Let me just give you some of that psalm. Psalm one twenty six, verse one: When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, so there's the restoration. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Mary's saying, Psalm 126, she's quoting Psalm, she's singing Psalm 126. She's singing of God's salvation and the restoration he's bringing through the Christ who God has brought to her to her womb. Add to that, she says, and and holy is his name. The holiness of God, holy is his name, she says, that's also related to the salvation that God brings. You know this psalm, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Why? The very next verse says, because of the forgiveness and the redemption he brings. Or Psalm 111 verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. God's name is spoken of as holy because of the redemption of his people. What I'm I'm getting at, what Mary's getting at, is that God's power and might and holiness are altogether seen in the redemption that God has brought in the past. That language she uses, that's redemption language. And, it, and, it, and it, it's not just used of those past salvations of God, but the big one that is coming. God's might and his holiness and his power. They're seen in, in the promised salvation that is to come in the age of Messiah. And Mary knows that. That's why she's using that language. The subject of her song, the subject of Mary's song, is the salvation that the Lord is bringing through Jesus. She's not singing about herself. She's not singing about her greatness, but about the work of God, the faithfulness of God. She believes what the Lord has said, and she's showing us how it is being fulfilled, and she's sitting there in the front row, pointing to all of the fulfillment Throughout the scriptures, that is happening with her and bringing the Christ. Now, normally when we think of, of might and holiness, we don't set those attributes besides beside mercy. But with God, his power and his might and holiness are inseparable from his mercy. God is not composed of parts. He is one. So God is mighty and holy and merciful all at once. His power and might and holiness, are they can't be taken away from his mercy. All of it is who God is. His holiness is a merciful holiness. His mercy is a mighty mercy. It's not that God is sometimes forgiving and merciful and sometimes powerful and holy. God is always the same. And Mary teaches us that. I love how Mary teaches us this in verse 50. Look at verse 50 with me. And, she uses the word and, she doesn't say but, she says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So this is not a contrast to verse 49. Verse 49, we have God's power, his might, his, his holiness, and verse 50, it's a complement to verse 49. God is mighty to save, and his saving name is holy, and he is merciful, and, and, and. All of that is who God is. He's merciful for those who fear him. He's always been that way, she says. It's always been that way. From eternity past to eternity future. From generation to generation. That's what that phrase means. From eternity past, God's always been merciful. Mary's quoting Psalm 103. Psalm 103. You might recognize it. Psalm 103, 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. The word that Mary uses for steadfast love is mercy. So we're going from Hebrew to Greek, and you've got some translation issues between the two. And so we go from steadfast love in the Old Testament to what is called mercy in the New Testament. And the way the word is used by Mary and by Psalm 103 is to show God's covenant faithfulness, his faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his covenants, to his people, God's mercy is a posture towards his people. And that posture is always compassion, love, mercy. In in his holiness and in his might, by sending the Christ, the Savior, God has kept his covenant promises for his people, those who fear him. And that, that mercy towards his people is shown through his salvation. This is what Mary's teaching us here. God's mercy is shown through his salvation. And his salvation is often described as God showing the strength of his arm. God's arm is a saving arm. It is a strong right arm. We saw that, didn't we, in in, in Exodus 15? This is what Mary says in in, in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. So you've got uh, the, the holiness of God. The mightiness of God, the mercy of God, and the strength of God. He's shown strength with his arm. And that's how how Moses puts it as well. In Exodus, God redeemed his people with his strong right arm. And Mary is saying God is redeeming us with that strong right arm again. Exodus 15, 13 says, You have led in your steadfast love. There's that word again, the word we translate mercy. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength. There's that arm, that strength. To your holy abode. The strength of God and the covenant love, the mercy of God, are always together in salvation. And Mary knows that. She knows her Bible, and she's keeping them together. But here's what we also need to know about the strength of God, the strong right arm of God. The strength of God's hand in redemption always has a judgment element to it as well. That's whenever you see strong right arm, you see redemption and judgment, salvation, judgment. In the Exodus, we see that in the judgment of Egypt, which is why Moses said, your your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, which is the saving right arm, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Salvation, judgment. And Mary sings the same song, and he's shown strength with his arm, and there's that strong saving arm. He has scattered the proud. You see that? In the the thoughts of their hearts. There's the judgment. Salvation, judgment. Judgment. God's strength is shown in the salvation for God's people and, at the same time, in the judgment of his enemies. Mary is echoing the old exodus, the first exodus, and singing of a new exodus. She's singing of the exodus that comes with Christ the Savior, the one who redeem his people from their enemies, the bondage of sin. At Mary, Mary, as the one who believes that God is faithful to his word, she's the blessed one, the singing one. She is singing of the fulfillment of all that God said would happen. That there would be a greater exodus. And that's happening with the arrival of Messiah. Now, now the last grouping of verses, we'll do these quickly. All of these belong together. They, they, are, they are echoing, echoes of passages like Psalm 107 in Isaiah 41, and several other places where the Bible recounts how God operates. See, see, the Bible has this pattern. When God shows, when he expresses his mercy, when God shows his covenant-keeping love, he always does it in the same way. And, 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 and the verses that Mary draws us to here, they're meant as a reminder of what God has done in the past in redeeming his people. He lifts them up and he protects them from harm. That's how God shows his covenant love. He lifts his people up and he protects them from harm. And that echo that Mary sings is sort of, is is a prophetic encouragement saying, God has done that in the past because he's merciful and and he loves his people. And because of who he is and because of the certainty of his word, he's going to do it again. So he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he's exalted those of humble estate. God has done that in the past. So think of Pharaoh being brought down and Jezebel being brought down and Nebuchadnezzar being brought down and Belshazzar all being brought down. Those who were were on their high thrones, they were brought down. And then in the New Testament, he uh, he brings down Herod who oppresses God's people and he brings down the Roman Caesars who will oppress God's people. They're all being brought down Most importantly, Satan is brought down. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Those who exalt themselves over God are brought down from their thrones. And that is a part of God's saving work of his people. At the same time, because of his mercy, God brings down those who exalt themselves, and he exalts those of humble estate. This is... This is the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Certainly Mary is seeing God's pattern of doing that throughout history. Enslaved Israel in Egypt is exalted. Barren Hannah, with no children, is exalted. Hannah is exalted. Mary sees the Lord doing this in herself. She says, God lifts up the humble. This is what God does. It's who he is. And Jesus teaches us this same thing consistently. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The kingdom of God is a a reworking of the worldly order. And we need to see that. We need to see that as true. I hope you're seeing that the humility theme here is bringing up of the downcast. Verse 53 follows the same principle. The kingdom of God doesn't operate according to worldly principles, but according to the mercy of God. Quoting Psalm 107, Mary says, He has filled the hungry... With good things, and the rich he sent away empty. Psalm 107 is a song about the covenant keeping love of God, the mercy of God. And the repeated refrain in that psalm is the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That's the mercy of God. So it's a song about the mercy of God. And in the mercy of God, he's filled the hungry with good things, the rich he sends away empty. In that song, you see the line, he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So, so filling the hunger here, when, when Mary says that God fills the hungry, it's an echo of God's people wandering in the wilderness with nothing to eat, and God brings them to the city of promise in Psalm 107. He's faithful to his word. He brings them. He fulfills his promises. Those who are rich, though, so you have the hungry whom God brings into filling. And, and then you have the rich who are sent away. Those who are rich are those who do not have that longing. They don't, they don't have a longing for what God alone provides. The rich think they have all they need. And so Mary says they're sent away empty. And that, that happens in Luke 18, doesn't it? A rich man comes to Christ seeking eternal life, but he's sent away empty. because He's already satisfied with his possessions. He's not truly seeking the Lord. It's a warning to us. The rich that Mary is talking about will seek the Lord. They will seek at least his benefits. They don't hunger for the Lord, knowing that the word of the Lord, Christ himself, is the only one who can satisfy. Instead, the so called rich seek satisfaction in what they provide themselves. To be rich in the sense that Mary is talking about, you don't have to be wealthy, you just need to be spiritually self sufficient. And that's a virtue in our day and age, isn't it? But it is, the, it is the worst of vices in the kingdom of God. The people that reject Christ, the, the, the people that are sent away empty, they're not atheists. Not most of them. If you were to have a spiritual conversation with a regular Joe from the street, and you were to find out, and he tells you, I'm not really interested in Christianity. It's not because he doesn't believe that there's a God Rather, he'll tell you, no, 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 religion is just not something I want. I have all that I need. How many times have you heard this? I'm fine. What he's saying to you is, I'm not hungry. He's saying, I'm rich. He's literally full of himself. He's not hungry. He's full. Friend, are you hungry? Are you hungry? Or are you self-sufficient and self-satisfied? Are you full of yourself? Are you hungry for the Lord? Because if you're hungry for the Lord, if you know that, that, that there is no satisfaction to be found in this world, if you know that the true joy is found in hoping in Christ and that the ultimate satisfaction of hoping in Christ will be found at his return, if you know that, then you're hungry and he will fill you with good things in this life. Because he's faithful to his word. That's what the last two verses say. God is faithful to his word. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary is concluding her song by singing Psalm 98 and a little bit of Micah 7. She's singing that because of God's steadfast love, because of his covenant-keeping mercy, he has fulfilled all of his promises, going all the way back to the promise to Abraham the promise to bring the offspring into the world who would bless the nations. She sang in conclusion that, friends, Mary's song is about Jesus. Let me just put it that way Mary's song is about Jesus. Mary is singing that all of those Old Testament promises of God are ultimately about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Just as the Holy Spirit through Elizabeth said, Mary is blessed because she believed that all God promised would come to pass in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed if you believe that God has been faithful to his word in bringing Jesus, the Christ. To believe God at his word, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, to receive the word of God is to receive Jesus as your Christ, your Lord, your Savior. To be hungry for the Lord is to look forward to the return of Christ. And as he says, he's coming soon. Let's thank him.